This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. You know, in what ways, as you think about specifically the church context, um... You know, what ways should the, the church think about um, all of these things as it comes to how it shapes its vision and mission? Um, you know, people kind of, I guess, the, the tendencies towards to give to things that people feel like are actually making a change in the world. And a lot of churches are struggling with this um, tension that exists of uh, how the church functions in society in, in one particular paradigm and the opportunities to be transformational in its approach in applying the gospel and new context. Um, you know, and so if people are giving towards what they feel like is making an impact, I guess, you know, this is a leading question, but how, how maybe should that churches rethink how they structure their vision and mission? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter. So each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Andy Hale, your CBF Podcast host. And this year we're celebrating our seventh year of the podcast, bringing you even better interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online, share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Pasadena, California, Louisville, Kentucky, Beaverton, Oregon, and Frankfurt, Germany. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters. The Honorable Charles Qual, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, 
more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.ed. Well, our guest is Xiao Chen Caps. She is the President and Chief Development Officer of the CBF Foundation. Xiao Chen, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you for having me. I felt like we've done this before. Right? Deja vu. <laughs> Uh, Xiao Chen, um, you know, it's disgusting. I can't, I can't imagine that anyone would not know the answer to this question, but what exactly is the CBF Foundation? Yeah, it's a great question. So the CBF Foundation works like many other foundations. We um, receive, we invest, and we steward. Uh, we work with individuals and churches to receive, invest, and steward long-term sustaining assets um, in order to fund all the different CBF-related ministry causes, which includes uh, ministries of local congregations. So for churches, tithes and offerings have been the primary mode of funding the work of the church. However, we know that many churches are changing drastically. We've seen a reduction in participation, the fading of a generation most associated with faithful tithing, so how is that forcing churches, which is a hard word, to rethink their funding model? Yeah, for sure. We're in that sort of a crucial point now where churches are indeed rethinking that. And I think they're now also more open to considering other possible um, models when it comes to um, cultivating generosity within their own congregation. I think what we're seeing is a shift um, in the landscape of religious giving from a more traditional paradigm to what we call the emerging paradigm. So the traditional paradigm is what we all are familiar with, where there is this sense of um, duty and obligation to give to the church. So the church doesn't really need to do a lot of, um, you know, active asking or active promotion or even active telling of the story of what people's gifts the impact that people's gifts are making. Mm -hmm. You know, why give to the church? But that is changing, especially with younger generations um, in terms of uh, why they give. You know, it's really important to connect uh, the impact of the gift, the stories. You know, why should we be giving to the church beyond just the moral obligation to give? So I think uh, churches are really needing to rethink. Uh, Churches are moving towards understanding and learning like a nonprofit because churches are nonprofits mm. um, and they're learning starting to learn the ropes of what that means when it comes to uh, raising resources and funds to fund their ministries so boomers and the great generation yeah um, you know uh, they're leaving behind a, a legacy if you will of of maybe something that hasn't come before them, this this sense of of wealth that actually came out of those uh, decades. Um, So how how does the foundation help with this as you think about people who are wanting to leave a legacy? Absolutely. So um, one of the things that we're really helping churches to, um, to do and to start to begin thinking if they have not thought of it already or do not have a legacy giving program in place is to consider 
uh, putting one in place. Because, uh, like you said, we are in the midst of uh, now until the next anywhere between 15 to 20 years in the midst of the greatest wealth transfer where baby boomers are aging and that um, the greatest wealth, is, it's really the greatest opportunity for philanthropy, uh, the biggest one ever, uh, where trillions of dollars are being passed on to the next generation and um, a big portion of that will be given to charity, right? Charitable causes. And we wanna make sure that the church, that our churches are at that table and we know that if we, don't, if we don't ask or if we don't actively promote and educate church members, that there is a way to leave a gift in their will, um, naming their church as a beneficiary of their estate, of their life insurance, of their um, IRA, uh, then the church is going to lose out on that. Because a lot of times it's not that members of congregations don't want to leave bequest give. Um, it's because they don't know how or they, they don't know there's an option. So it's really important just the mere mentioning and educating about legacy giving and that it is, very, it is something that is doable. A lot of times people have a lot of misconceptions about legacy giving. It sounds so big and royal and only, and, and you often hear of it in the context of like higher education institution and related to buildings named after people. But the truth is planned gifts, legacy gifts are within the reach of most of our congregation members. Hmm. So talking about money is hard. Yeah. And you know, while there's spiritual formation around the concept of tithing, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of ministers feel comfortable doing that. I think a lot of ministers, if they're honest, would feel very uncomfortable right. with the idea of talking about legacy giving with their churches mm-hmm. or even churches starting endowments because there's a lot of churches that almost, I served a church one time, they said that kind of feels like gambling with the stock market, you know? So how does, how does the foundation step into that gap or step into that space that a lot of ministers maybe aren't comfortable talking about those things. Yeah, so I think um, a lot of times it is true that having someone from the outside be able to bring these topics up um, can be very helpful for a lot of pastors and ministers, right, who find find themselves in um, a rather awkward or um, difficult place to be talking about that because, you know, that they may have a sense of a conflict of interest because their salary is paid by the church and, you know, they don't want to come across as salesy or mm. whatever that may be. But there is this real fear um, or dislike in, in talking about that topic. So CBF Foundation can, can be helpful in partnering and walking alongside churches to be that voice for the church. Um, and it works out very well uh, to invite us to come to speak to your congregation members about legacy giving. Uh, It's a natural way of educating them, giving them the facts about what that means, how to give, the different ways they can give, and then be able to weave in. um, By the way, consider your own local congregation when you're writing your will. And also, CBF Foundation can also help make a will writing accessible. Uh, because that's been one of the real barriers, not just for churches, but really for Americans in general. Because 64% of Americans believe that having a will is very important, but only 34% of Americans actually have a will 
or an established estate plan. And the reasons for that is it can be expensive, it can be, uh, they, they believe it's too time consuming, and they don't have the necessary tools that they need to create one. So at CBF Foundation, um, for the past um, two years, we've really worked on democratizing the access of these tools uh, so that our CBF community have access to an online will writing platform that will take, if you don't have a complicated estate, it will take you anywhere from 20 minutes to 30 minutes to complete a will online. And it's a legal, it's a legal will in all 50 states. It's a very um, user-friendly, and it, it's like the TurboTax of writing will, basically. Um, and you can have a will by, you know, when you work it through, it's about, again, 20 to 30 minutes to complete it. So we've made it really accessible. And for those with more complicated estate, it's a really good planning tool that they can use to actually save them money when they actually go to an attorney because it helps them to organize all the things that they will need before they go to an attorney because when you save time, you also save money. So where do people go to, to learn more about will writing, legacy gifts, endowments? Where, where do they need to visit? So um, go to our website, which is CBF net forward slash cbf hyphen foundation and you will find us there and um, there's a link to the free will writing tool and also information about legacy giving and a contact information to reach reach out to me directly and happy to schedule with any individual or churches who may want to know more about legacy giving and planned giving our guest is Xiao Chen Caps, the President and Chief Development Officer of the CBF Foundation. Xiao Chen, good to talk with you. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. This is the CBF Podcast Conversation nestled in the heart of the gathering place at General Assembly in Atlanta. We are bringing back to the stage... The man, the myth, the legend, Ricky Letson, because last night we couldn't hear him and we couldn't record him in this amazing interview. So Ricky Letson is the CBF Congregational Stewardship Officer. Without a badge. That's a mouthful. Yeah. Ricky, thank you for joining the conversation. Sure. So um, tell us a little bit about your background as a local church pastor that helped cultivate the experience that you provide to CBF congregations. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks again, Andy, for having me. Uh, so yeah, so I served local churches for 25 years before coming into this role with CBF. And, and for me, just a part of my DNA growing up, the son of a business owner, being married to someone in the corporate space, was really an interest in churches from an administrative perspective. How do we um, sort of uh, do good work in that space? How do we um, do good work from a financial perspective? And so that had always been a part of my leadership of local churches. And so I was so excited when CBF created the position of Congregational Stewardship Officer, 
wanting to do this work of supporting churches and their overall financial health and well-being. And so it was a great fit for me. I, I hope a great fit for CBF. And so it's a way to marry my passion and interest in the financial side of church life uh, with the need for our churches to do good work in this space uh, because of its critical place in the American church in 2023. Well, I like you. So, I mean, that's got to count. <laughs> I like you too, Andy. For something. I mean, pretty purple shirt you have yeah, on. Thanks. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, it's a strange new day and age for funding ministry. Um, we know that there's a tremendous gap between generations when it comes to contributions. So how is this leading to new funding models for churches? Yeah, great question. So we definitely need to and want to see our churches continue to grow our people as people of generosity. So we're all about stewardship education. At the same time, we realize that the church going forward is likely going to need multiple streams of revenue. Now, the, the other stream of revenue that churches are familiar with are endowments, encouraging people to leave gifts through their will and their estate, and then taking that money, investing it conservatively, uh, producing an ongoing pre um, predictable income stream. An emerging way of also creating alternate revenue is by monetizing property and space. Now, churches have done this for years, uh, but it's a growing part of, of church life, and it's a growing part of, of deepening and expanding the revenue stream. So being good stewards of our space, our property, and seeing that as a way to generate some extra revenue for the church. And some churches do this to a large degree and others to a small degree. Yeah, so let's, let's take that concept a little deeper. You've created this amazing resource called Sacred Spaces. I have a copy of it down here. It was, it was displayed the first time we did I'm this. I'm sure you've read it. I've, I actually have read it, uh, and I've, I've sent it along to many of our churches. So tell us about the vision behind Sacred Spaces. Yeah, so uh, Sacred Spaces is a grant-funded um, project. Uh, the goal is to study churches within CBF Life who've done great work around creative use of their property, um, their, their facility, or, or their land. And the idea is not only to look at how they've done this uh, creative work, but how they've also monetized the buildings and the, and the land as well. Um, and again, it, it's, it's large and small examples. We tell the stories of churches that... Um, um, add a hundred plus thousand dollars to their annual revenue, and we tell the story of churches who do this on a smaller scale. And really, what they do is they offset the expenses either of running that portion of their property, or at least offset the expenses of the ministries that take place within that building. So uh, it's it's examples all over the board, mm -hmm. so to speak. Yeah. So uh, we've had some conversations and thinking through a process. I took the most recent church I serve, University Baptist Church. Yep. going through a complete kind of what we called space usage process yes. and evaluating from top to bottom, not only how we were using our space on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night or throughout the week, but how we could leverage it for growth and development, both for missional partnerships and for revenue. Um, some really cool things came out of that process. And I know a lot of churches that they stop and reflect is that two kind of sided initiative, right? The missional aspect and the revenue side Yep. of it. Um, Absolutely. So how can people uh, connect with your work? So there are two volumes of sacred spaces now. Um, and through the, the work, um, 
one way to connect is just to pick up the resource or reach out to me at, at CBF, and we'll send you copies, or you can download it digitally from the CBF website, uh, cbf.net backslash sacred-spaces. Um, and reading it, it's, it's storytelling. Uh, we do 10 case stories of 10 different congregations, and it's not meant to be uh, prescriptive. We don't say, hey, read these 10 stories, choose the one that works for you, and have at it. But it's descriptive. It gets you thinking about what's possible, what you might be able to do with your building, uh, how you might be able to monetize, and it helps you to answer the question within your own context. Uh, but the other things we're starting to do is come alongside individual conversations and um, do weekend events, one-day events, or longer-term relationships where we help a congregation not only learn about this work, but also help them do some good uh, brainstorming, some, um, some decision-making, some processing, and sort of help them move down the pathway of, of moving from this as a concept to a real possibility in the life of their church. So we'd love to have conversations with any congregation who might be interested at any level of the sacred spaces work. Reflecting on some of the churches in sacred spaces, but also other churches you're working with, what, what kind of things are happening as a result of these missional and revenue-based space partnerships? Well, it's amazing. Uh, first of all, uh, the creativity is, is off the charts. Uh, from a solar farm to renting out space to smaller congregations to sharing space with nonprofits for, for office space to the example you mentioned at University Baptist, which is really a, an area designed for children and their families, um, uh, to a church that we profile in Missouri where the church had, had gotten to the point where they could no longer be the primary occupant of their space. And theirs is a story of becoming the secondary tenant in their own building. So the creativity is, is off the charts. But what we see in this, Andy, is that, yes, it benefits the church in um, being creative. It benefits them in generating some degree of, of, of revenue in, in one shape, form, or fashion or another. But it also leads to them being an amazing community partner. A lot of times, particularly in smaller towns, churches sit on the best piece of property, they have some of the best space, and this opens up that space to their community and invites their community in in a way that they would never be able to do simply through the programs or the worship services or the normal activities of the church. So it is a huge win-win opportunity. It, it's great space usage. It generates revenue. But it's a huge way to become an altogether different sort of partner in the life of your community. Well, I think one of the key kind of aspects of that, that churches take advantage of the opportunity to cultivate these things, but don't miss the opportunity to also be the presence of Christ there. You know, being Absolutely. a hospitable presence, being gracious host, um, finding ways to invest in the lives of people that are coming there and they get to know you. It, that, that has an effect on the community, and it gains a reputation um, for the church in the area. Yeah. Uh, so you got two, two uh, publications of this coming out. Yep. Um, what, what's another project you're working on you want us to be aware of? Yeah, so uh, in the area of, of stewardship education, um, I just came from a lunch um, uh, with a group of, of ministers from congregations who have just finished what's called Cultivating Generous Congregations, which is a cohort 
that uh, CBF offers uh, actually was piloted by CBF South Carolina and CBF North Carolina back a couple of years ago. Uh, we offer it in uh, the winter and in the fall. Uh, we do 12 or 13 churches at a time, and it's a four-session look at what it looks like to build and grow our people as people of generosity. In 2023, it's done in partnership with the Lake Institute. And so we're actively recruiting right now for our fall cohort. We've had 47 churches who have now graduated from cultivating generous congregations. We think this is a huge opportunity to help churches, ministers, lay leaders think about how they can actively promote stewardship and grow their people as people of generosity in a healthy, authentic, appropriate way in 2023. So that's another initiative that we would love to invite congregations to be a part of alongside the work of Sacred Spaces. Our guest is Ricky Letson, the CBF Congregational Stewardship Officer. You can learn more about his work at cbf.net. Ricky, thanks for doing this again. You bet, Andy. Thanks so much. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Since 2016, CBF episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Well, our guest is Dr. David King. Uh, he's the director of the Lake Institute of Faith and Giving and the associate professor at Indiana University's Lilly Fam- Family School of Philanthropy. David, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for letting me be here. So, um, you know, I thought of someone not knowing who David King is, um, let alone the work you do. But for, for, our, for our audience that's listening to this, we're recording this General Assembly. For all audiences that's listening to this later on, uh, tell us about your work at the Lake Institute. Yeah, it's really a privilege to be at Lake Institute. We, we talk about that we are the best school of philanthropy in the world, probably because we're the only school of <laughs> philanthropy in the world. Um, but Lake Institute's been around for about 20 years with this express mission of, of, of digging into the intersection, how faith inspires and informs giving. So we take uh, several things that are sometimes difficult to talk about, faith, and we throw money into it, and we put those two together. But our real mission is not only to, to, to dig into the research and scholarship about what we know around 
uh, fundraising and faith-based uh, communities, congregations, and nonprofits, but also a lot of practical uh, uh, training, you know, professional development training, working with pastors, executive directors, leaders on questions of stewardship and generosity. And then we pull together what we think of as sort of public conversation. Conversations like this, bringing in uh, voices and speakers to, to dig into those uh, somewhat difficult topics and, and continue to think about uh, best practices, but also reimagining some of the theological work around what's at the intersection of, of faith and giving. So y'all you, have done some fascinating studies, and you write a lot about this. So we're going to kind of do a deep dive in some of your more recent work, uh, specifically thinking through your article you wrote recently about the power of giving in our communities. Um, you've raised some fascinating points about the intersection of faith and giving, starting with the erosion of trust in institutions. Um, you know, according to a 2022 Gallup survey, only 31% of Americans have a great deal of confidence in organized religion. Um, I actually did some work around this survey and the his history behind this survey because for, for book I'm writing, actually out of my doctoral uh, dissertation. Um, so when you compare that to 1973, Again, 31% in 2022. 1973's Gallup study found that 65% of Americans indicated they had a great deal of, of trust in church or organized religion. What does this tell us about the current trends in giving in the church? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, there, we, we talk a lot about the declines in religiosity, declines in uh, religious affiliation or attendance or membership. Um, and that does play a, a, a significant part in thinking around the declines in, in giving sometimes in our local congregations. But generally, I think it's important to put congregations in context of other nonprofits and institutions. We're seeing the uh, decline in, in institutional trust across the board. So um, the good news, the glass half full, is religious organizations are somewhat towards the top <laughs> of the list of institutional trust, even though that might hover in the Gallup um, survey around 31%. Others that we've done recently point to about a quarter of uh, Americans have a good uh, think that religious nonprofit organizations are, are fully transparent and trustworthy. So I think we as, as leaders in, in religious institutions and congregations can't take for granted the fact that um, individuals trust what we do and, and know about what we do. So. Um, you know, the Kiwanis Club, the Rotary Club, all these kinds of institutions are somewhat, that are voluntary organizations, uh, are, are, have changed significantly since just a few years ago or a few decades ago with how people kind of come together. And I think for us as religious leaders, particularly in congregations, that trust is, is earned. And so we have to move with that in mind, knowing that that's not something that we need to take for granted, but we have to work really hard to demonstrate and to tell stories that uh, that demonstrate that we're trustworthy um, with our leadership as well as our, our resources. Yeah, so it's funny going back to uh, to this study, you know, 1973, 42% of Americans reported they had a great deal of trust in Congress versus 7% in 2022. The only mainstayers, uh, the only ones that experienced kind of a, not a, a subtle change actually was uh, small businesses went from 63% in 1973 to 68% in 2022. <laughs> so it is, it is important to put it uh, in context. You've also, uh, you know, covered a study that found that religious charitable organizations top the list of the most trusted, you're just kind of alluding to this, of charitable organizations uh, to do what is right. Um, however, only 
uh, percent of the people reported they were completely trusting of religious charitable organizations to do the right thing. So what, what is this telling us? I think it's probably telling us a couple of things. So while religious nonprofits are towards the top of the list of, the, of how Americans perceive institutions uh, as far as trust, it's a, <laughs> thinking around that you know, quarter, 30%, uh, that's, a small, that's a small number who actually do fully trust. So part of it is, again, telling the stories. Part of it is the way that uh, a handful of stories around institutions that might not be trustworthy or have had uh, major failings in leadership, finances, whatever, um, uh, impact all of us. And so just as important as being able to tell our own story is, is, is to put ourselves in this larger context. I think oftentimes, particularly for congregations or faith-based nonprofits, we don't spend the time or the money telling our story. We just assume that people are going to sort of walk in our doors and, and understand why we're there and what we're doing. Uh, that's not the case. And so in a sense of uh, sort of an, an apologetic, not, not just for the gospel, but also for what we are doing in the community and why and how we are being transparent or trustworthy with resources uh, is particularly important as we're beginning to fight more and more of an uphill battle for, um, for that trust. Yeah, let's go right there. You, you use that word transparency. That's the that concern, concern for donors. So tell us how this might inform the way the church should approach its monetary practices when it comes to a concern over transparency. Well, at first, you know, thinking about transparency is, is super important. And, and there are just some easy, uh, maybe not always so easy, but, but very clear best practices for how we um, are transparent with our finances. So thinking about the, the policies and procedures that are in place and how we handle money when we collect it, um, where, does it where does it go, how is it accounted for. Um, so some of those basic practices. This is, this is work that can, that can take a long time in a congregation but needs to, needs to be done. Um, and I think being transparent not only with how the money is handled but also how it's spent, so being clear with, with the budget. Uh, and then telling stories about where those resources are, are pointing to. So um, oftentimes it's, we oftentimes kind of talk about narrative budgets in the work that we do, Lake Institute. Few people actually care how much you spend on coffee or donuts. But if you think about it in some ways about how that informs the hospitality practices of your church or how you think about missions and the work that personnel um, plays in that role. So telling the story... Um, having those clear policies and procedures and having that budget where people can look at it if they want to, but to really point to what's being done and, and how it's how those resources are um, being spent is, is really important. So an, another telling finding from your recent study looked at how much confidence uh, do people have in their ability, the ability of groups to solve societal and global problems um, now and in the future. And religious institutions ranked second behind not-for-profit organizations um, and only had 12.3% of people reporting a great deal of confidence. That, that sounds like a pretty scary outlook uh, for churches. Um, so, so, you know, again, what, what does this tell us? We're, we're not all doom and gloom this interview. We'll get to some good stuff in a second. But what does this tell us? And is, is, there, is, this, is there a way to look at this as an upside, an opportunity here? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think one thing that, that struck me with those findings is the fact that um, these, these wicked problems are getting harder and harder to solve by any one organization. So the fact that nonprofits or congregations or, um, you know, 
government, Congress is going to continue to be at the bottom of that list. But these are really difficult problems. I think as a as, as a glass half full approach with congregational leaders, it's working with and uh, among other organizations, partnering because these problems, you know, are, are structurally too difficult for any one of us to solve on our own. So using as an opportunity to to meet others, to collaborate, to, to build um, uh, communities around these kinds of issues is a great invitation to realize we don't have to go at it alone and, and really can't. Uh, our communities don't expect us to. They don't have a lot of confidence that we can. But working together across oftentimes these lines that we've oftentimes um, have, have, have built around ourselves is uh, probably a good way to go forward in the future. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. All right. I, I do hate to be all gloom and gloom in this interview. <laughs> Uh, but your study also found, I say you, like, you, you know, you're responsible for, for what people think. David, Just but, reporting. Yeah, yeah. but, um, you know, when thinking about nonprofit and philanthropic uh, sector overall, um, you know, you ask the question, do people believe things are headed in the right direction or are they off the wrong track? And only 17.6 reported they believe things are headed in the right direction. What were the reasons people reported you know, that they didn't think things were headed in the right direction when it comes to nonprofit and philanthropic work? It's a, it's a good question. I don't think we know too much more about what was what were in their minds. We didn't uh, sort of uh, pry too much more deeply underneath that. But I, I think, A, this is just a, a general um, feeling in our, in our particular context in society right now that things, uh, whether it's right or left, politically, theologically, but, you know, many, many sides on the on the edges uh, of our thinking that we're going in the wrong direction in different ways. Um, I think uh, being able to, as leaders, to articulate what those problems are, the difficulties that are involved in our, um, in our society that make us need to continue to kind of engage with one another. Uh, my, I guess my advice would be not to let these somewhat doom and gloom numbers uh, paralyze us into inaction. So I think really there's some bright, there's some silver linings here about the trust generally that nonprofits and particularly religious organizations with all the headwinds that many of us hear in the news from sort of uh, declining numbers here and there. Uh, in, a, in a glass half full approach, it's, it's, it's to work towards where those bright spots are, realize that there are a lot of problems and to be a part of the solution and building those sort of uh, collegial communities is the, probably the best way forward. You know, in what ways, as you think about specifically the church context, um, you know, what ways should the, the church think about um, all of these things as it comes to how it shapes its vision and mission? Um, you know, people kind of, I guess, the, the tendencies towards to give to things that people feel like are actually making a change in the world. 
and a lot of churches are struggling with this um, tension that exists of uh, how the church functions in society in, in one particular paradigm and the opportunities to be transformational in its approach in applying the gospel in new context. Um, you know, and so if people are giving towards what they feel like is making an impact, I guess, you know, this is a leading question, but how, how maybe should that churches rethink how they structure their vision and mission and application, not just in, on a website that looks great? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, in our work at Lake Institute, we talk a lot about uh, sort of what we would push towards as the paradigm shift in the way we talk about giving. Uh, and so it's very true that in the last generation, and this is not just millennials, Gen Zers, and on down, but across generational um, cohorts, we're seeing a shift from financially wanting to give to support institutions or, th or sort of out of a sense of obligation, giving back to one's local community, instead to focusing in on uh, a passion and desire to give where someone has, where someone's passion values match up. Uh, and so oftentimes what we do in, in our congregations is sort of do, uh, is invite people to give out of that sense of obligation. Uh, we as the leaders know what's right. We, here's the budget. We ask that you give to it. Trust us, trust us as an institution to know what's best. Uh, what if instead we sort of invited people to help discern what they're passionate about, where their values are, and illustrate how the congregation, uh, our institutions, are doing work squarely in that space and invite them along with us to point to that work. And so really it is beginning to take that shift and move away from this model of built on institutional trust and obligation and duty and how we might ask, invite people to give, to where we are, which is having to earn that trust and alignment with passion and values. Congregations, religious leaders, should be really good at that. Asking discerning questions about what you care about. Asking questions of how you might imagine what the world would look like um, if we were able to move in this direction. Use those skills that make you really good at pastoral care, leadership, in casting that vision and mission so that it, it feels real and invites people along with you, and that's where, where that alignment and passion and values are, that you'll find people who are just um, ready and willing to give. Switching gears a little bit from, from kind of this study, um, you know, you all look at kind of generational um, contributions to these types of things. Uh, what have your studies found on Gen X and, and younger, so millennials and Gen Z, when it comes to religious uh, philanthropy, if, for lack of better terms? Yeah, a, a couple of things. So one would be the word um, giving or philanthropy or generosity in general. So uh, younger generations, this is, again, true across the board, but more, more so with millennials on down. Um, think of the word generosity in broader terms. And so instead of simply giving or volunteering to a 501c3 nonprofit entity, whether that's a congregation or uh, the Salvation Army or uh, Catholic social services, they think much more broadly. So things that don't actually count as a charitable uh, gift as far as the IRS is concerned, like making a political donation, working on uh, issues around advocacy, for instance, or simply giving 50 bucks to their friends GoFundMe. All of these kinds of uh, what they would think of as charitable acts fit into sort of our broader definition of generosity. 
So that helps us reimagine the picture in some ways because there may be a decline in giving, giving percentages of households that are giving if we keep that same definition of how many uh, Americans give to a 501c3 nonprofit to the local congregation, let's say. But if we open the door more broadly, we can see people are uh, primed and ready to be generous. It's just maybe we in the institutions have to open up our understanding of what, uh, what it means to be generous uh, and align with some of those same passions and values. When it comes to religion, I think one thing that we're seeing is, yes, younger generations are less likely to give to more established religious institutions like congregations, but they continue to give out of uh, faith, spiritual meaning, values too. So 55% um, of all Americans give out of their spiritual or religious values to whatever causes that might be, their local congregation, environmental cause, arts and culture. So digging into that value set, whether it's being a moderate Baptist or a Presbyterian or simply someone who's deeply connected to their you know, faith or spiritual journey is important for us to remember. It may just need to take different words, different language, and a reimagining of what we mean by religious giving. So a little time we have left. As, as generations associated with giving are aging, um, namely boomers and the great generation. What, what should churches be doing um, to think about the younger generation that, that tend to contribute, again, to different resources? How should maybe they start thinking creatively about funding the work of the church? Yeah, I would say a couple things. So one, we're working with that um, sort of established older generation, uh, not to be flippant, but, but, but really reflecting on legacy giving, plan giving is super important uh, because those have oftentimes been the stalwarts and bed, bedrocks of our organizations and to, and to begin to think about ways that they can continue uh, to leave that legacy going forward is important. You don't want to do that, um, you know, at the very end of one's life. It's when you find that opening, when someone is able to think about those big questions, that's the time to have a conversation. Uh, and I would say in particular, as you look down to younger generations, intergenerational work is super important on that front. So that's having those boomers and, and those greatest generation folks talking to millennials and Xers about what the values of the institutions that we hold dear, um, what it means for them, so it's storytelling, but also to listen and see what it means for that um, millennial family. So, and I think the other thing I would mention are how important religious practices are in this work. So giving is a spiritual discipline, it's a practice, it's something we're not either good or bad at, it's something that we can grow into. And so, particularly one of the best ways with younger generation uh, is to find ways to equip them to talk about these issues with their kids or in a small group setting with their peers, uh, because getting them in a place that they're somewhat vulnerable to ask these kind of um, questions, that it's not that they're unwilling to talk about, they just don't know how to get into that conversation. Find ways to talk about it around the dinner table, think about small ways to have children, youth, young adults participate in the giving practices, whether they have $1,000 to give or $10 to give is super important, because when we ask that question over and over again, where did you learn to give? No matter where people came from, it's usually those faith communities. When we don't pass the plate or the basket as much anymore, when we're in sort of a, a digital society where we're giving on our phone or we have it automatically debited from our um, account, 
how are we demonstrating those giving practices when they're not obvious to the next generation? That's a question that's going to be super important for us to think through. Hmm. All right, since you know, those listening to this um, have, have taken in your tremendous insight and wisdom, um, how can they connect with your work? We love uh, and we have a great relationship working with uh, CBF at Lake Institute, thinking through um, some of this work that we do through cultivating generous congregations. So there's, uh, there's outlets uh, through CBF and CBF Foundation where we can partner together. Uh, and so we would really refer folks to the work the CBF and the CBF Foundation that we do with Lake Institute so that we can find ways to connect and even train and bring um, clergy and lay teams together asking them about some of these questions, practical tips, and some of these bigger questions about what it looks like in their congregation. But we'd love for you to follow us at Lake Institute on, um, on Twitter, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. There's where you'll find um, links to our website where we have what we call uh, our new resource library. So not only do we do these courses, but we try to curate some of the best resources, some of them written by colleagues here at CBF, on whether they're, they're stories, um, their illustrations, their worksheets, um, that we can find ways to kind of, whenever you need it, kind of dig into those resources. So that's lakeinstitute.org, but you can find it as you, if you follow us at Lake Institute. But we're here to be a resource. And so if we can find things that relate to this intersection of faith and giving, uh, hopefully you'll find it at, at our website. For those listening uh, to this podcast episode um, you know, later on, uh, just know that David actually models this generosity we've attached in the episode notes as credit card, and you can use that for uh, any type of charitable donation that you want to give to in his honor. So thank you, David. It's very generous of you. Glad to do that. Yeah, I'll send the bill your way. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of scripture with the NRSV updated edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.